welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is a result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organisations and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Prof- Professor Penny Lewis. Uh, Penny, hi. Hi. So it's good to connect and I know you're down in sunny Wales. Is that Cardiff somewhere? Yes, it is. Yes. Brilliant. So um, I'm really interested to um, to hook up with you. We've had a quick chat before this sort of session starts. And um, how do you describe your your work, your research? What what is it you're about? So my work is about sleep, um, and the main focus of my work is on sleep and cognition. Um, and and I've sort of coined the term sleep engineering. So what we're looking at is how we can manipulate the sleep that we get in order to in order to improve our cognition as much as possible. So it's not just um, about telling people to sleep longer or telling people to sleep in a, a darker or a quieter place. It's about actively getting in and changing the sleep that they have and seeing what that does to their cognition. So you're seeing a, a cor- correlation between a certain type of sleep and your ability to have superior cognition or thinking. Is that, is that, the, is that the idea? Um, well, a, a correlation would be one way of looking at it, but what we're actually doing is a manipulation, so we're actually altering the sleep. Um, so within cognition, there are various different areas that we look at. The, the biggest one is probably memory. Um, so we know that many forms of memory are strengthened across sleep. Um, and, and it's not just the strengthening, actually, that happens. It's that m- many forms of memory are protected against decay. They're integrated into knowledge that we had already. And we think that sleep also works to kind of recombine these memories. And this can be really important for aspects of creativity as well. So and the big question in our field, given that we know these things happen across sleep, the big question has been, what is going on during sleep that facilitates this? What is it about sleep that does this? And, and that's sort of what we work on. Um, um, we don't, and we don't really know the answer at the moment, but the strongest kind of possibility relates to something called memory replay. So it turns out that recently formed memories are neurally reinstated during sleep. Um, and that means that it's as if the brain is practicing these memories. It's, it's replaying neurally what was learned during the day. So for instance, a simple example would be if you've been playing a piece on the piano, we know that particular areas of your brain are active in controlling the finger movements and, um, and we know exactly where those are. And what we see is that those pieces of the brain are active again when you're sleeping subsequently. So that's an example of neural replay. And furthermore, studies have shown that the extent to which you'll get better at um, 
performing that piano piece, and people do get better by about 20% on average over a night of sleep, will be predicted by the extent to which those areas were active during the night. And so it seems not only is the brain um, rehearsing these memories, but somehow that rehearsing is doing something to them. It's, it's changing the way they're represented in the brain, making it potentially more efficient in some way, and that's where the strengthening part comes from. Wow. Uh, wow, that's that's big, isn't it? So let me let me unpack that a bit. So um, so you're saying that if you have a visceral experience like playing a musical instrument, it's interesting. I used to be a musician, so I particularly hooked into an area of interest in mine. Um, so basically, if you played an instrument during the day, you're replaying that at night, but somehow the brain's coding that in a different way. So it's, it's laying down the memory across the brain. Is that how it's working or something? Or Because in order to get this sort of 20% uplift, there, there must be something going on that's producing that outcome. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we've done brain imaging studies where we look at how um, information is coded before you sleep and then after you sleep, and we look at the relation between this coding. And when I say coded, I mean which areas of the brain are involved in representing that information. Um, and we see that it changes across sleep. And so, absolutely, we expect that it's that change in the way the information is represented in the brain that allows the improvement that we see. And that change somehow uh, seems to depend on this memory reinstatement or replay. And is that, is that particularly with physical tasks, um, or does it work well with, with cognitive tasks? So, for example, if, you're, if you have a problem and you go to sleep, there's always this idea that somehow you wake up with the answer. So is a similar process at work there? Um, yes, it seems to work with many different kinds of tasks, but I mean, this is the kind of question that we're exploring in our research. So the tasks which show the strongest actual improvement do tend to be motor tasks or what we call procedural tasks. Yeah. Um, so things where you might not be aware of what you've learned in the first place, um, but, you, but you, you just can do it uh, procedurally, like riding a bicycle. Um, however, other kinds of memories are also excellent. So what we call episodic memories, that would be a memory like memory of what you had for breakfast, memory of an episode in your life. Those things um, are also impacted by sleep, but not in quite the same way. Episodic memories tend to decay across time, um, and they can decay quite sharply as we forget them, but actually they don't decay as much across sleep. So they're protected against decay, and they're actually also protected against interference from other memories, related memories that you might learn on top that might cause confusion. Um, that's less likely to cause confusion if you've slept on the episodic memory first. So it's, there's almost some sort of packaging up of the memory to protect it against other memories, so, they don't, so the, the memories don't infect each other. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, we're not sure how it's protected against the interference, we just know that it is. Yeah, that is um, yeah. but, but I mean, actually, if anything, um, the more interesting questions are, seem to be around how memories get recombined and integrated together across sleep. So um, we've got growing evidence that if you learn new information, um, then sleep helps to integrate that new information in with knowledge that you already had. So um, an example might be, you know, if I learn, um, I don't know, it's a nice sunny day today in Cardiff, and I that's an episode that I am observing today, um, then 
in order to make sense of that, I need to uh, relate it to my prior knowledge about Cardiff and how often it's sunny and the fact that it's April, it's springtime, what would you expect in springtime, um, and so on. So, you know, the observation of what I'm seeing right now doesn't really mean much until I integrate it into what I know already. And that process of integration seems to be facilitated by sleep. So, I mean, people talk about the health benefits of sleep, but you're saying that it's not just a simple health benefit. It's not like a well-being benefit. It's a sort of fundamental way of actually allowing us to make sense of the world. Yeah, so we think that, I mean, sleep is very important for health. There's no question about that. But the, the thing that we work on is cognition. And it seems that sleep is very important, not only for making sense of the world, but kind of building our world knowledge. So building our, our sort of models of how we expect everything to work and so that we can make predictions about things that go on in the world. So yes, I think sleep is incredibly important for our memory in that way and for our cognition. You also talk about um, sleep and emotional episodes. Um, so what, what do you mean by that? Um, so there's a lot of work showing that sleep is, is important for emotion. So we probably all know already um, anecdotally that if we don't sleep, if we're sleep deprived for a night, then we feel pretty rough, right? So, I mean, it, well, actually, it can, sleep deprivation can lead to a temporary euphoria in people with depression. But in, in normal, healthy people... We normally feel quite grumpy, we're quite sensitized, we're more likely to pick up on negative things, um, um, you know, we're, we're a bit fragile if we've been sleep deprived for a night. So in that sense, sleep clearly impacts on emotion. Um, but there's another area in which it impacts on emotion and that's about emotional memory. So supposing we've uh, had a traumatic memory, you know, maybe we've, we've had a uh, mugging or a car accident or something like that and it's very stressful for us to remember it and it may cause huge amounts of I mean we irrespective of how well we remember what happened we, we may have a strong emotional response to it and that could be accompanied by um, increased heart rate could be accompanied by pupil dilation sweating on the skin all these things are markers of a, a strong emotional arousal so people are looking at what sleep does to that kind of emotional response that's associated with a memory. And there is evidence, uh, there's actually a, a bit of a debate about this, so there's evidence both ways. There's evidence that sleep strengthens up these emotional memories, so you remember them better uh, after, after sleep. But there's also evidence that sleep can help to decouple the emotional response from the memory itself. So it may be that you're strengthening the memory, um, but you're weakening the emotional response. And in many cases, that would be a good thing because it might allow you to remember what happened without being so upset about it. And I guess that's part of the old, mid, um, the old wives' tale about you know t things get better after after time. If that that would that would support that view, wouldn't it? Because the dissociation of the, the emotional context from the event is actually just time-based because it depends from what you're saying on just how, how much sleep you've had or over what period of time. Yeah, so we would make a distinction between time and sleep. Um, so, you know, very often in our experiments, 
we have an equivalent equivalent period of time without sleep as a control. Um, so originally at the beginning of this conversation, you asked me about correlations between brain activity and sleep and you know these kinds of effects. And, and, and that's right. If we were just looking at correlations, then we could only look at, you know, maybe a correlation between certain oscillations in the brain during sleep and these changes compared to a period where people don't sleep. And if we want to avoid sleep deprivation, we could only do that for 15 hours or something, you know, without keeping people awake beyond their normal, normal time. But actually in our experiments, we go a lot further than that. We don't just uh, do correlational work, we do manipulations. And the way we do that is by um, triggering the replay of specific memories while people are sleeping. So, you know, we know that this replay is important. And what we're trying to understand is how is it important? What does it do in different situations? So the situation of strengthening, the situation of protection against decay or interference, the situation of integrating into other you know, pre-existing knowledge, or the situation of, of decoupling the emotions are all examples. Um, and so what we do is instead of just looking at the correlations between what happens naturally in the sleep and these and these processes, um, we actually trigger the memories to replay. We control uh, when they replay and, and how many times they replay and at what sleep stage they replay. And we do that using a technique called targeted memory reactivation. Right. And um, this is, it's very simple actually. It is almost, relates strongly to an old wives' tale about playing sounds to people during sleep. So, um, what we do is we would pair the learned information with sounds during the day. So you'd learn, you know, these pictures are associated with these sounds, for instance. Um, and then we would replay those sounds during subsequent sleep. And we can choose which stage of sleep because the sleep isn't just homogeneous. It's broken up into four um, very distinct different stages. Um, we could choose which of those stages we played in, and depending on which stage we played in, we would expect different outcomes in terms of the processes that I've been talking about. So for the emotional, um, particularly for the question of emotion, it looks as though replaying the memories in REM sleep, which is the sort of deep stage of sleep um, characterized by rapid eye movements mm. under, under closed lids, which probably people have all, all seen in babies. You can see particularly easily those eye movements in, in babies, and they get a lot of REM sleep. Um, so we would trigger replay of these emotional memories in REM sleep, and typically what we would do is um, we'd train people on, you know, we'd, we'd expose them to some nasty pictures, uh, and each of them would have a different sound associated with it, and then we would train, then, then we would expose them to those half of those sounds during REM sleep, and then the next day we would ask them, uh, we'd show them the pictures and we'd ask them to say how upsetting each of them is. Mm. And what we found in a couple of studies now is that um, if they have had the sound played during sleep, REM sleep, then they will rate the pictures less upsetting than it was the previous day. So, so that's the kind of manipulation that we can do. And so they may remember the picture more strongly or just as strongly, um, but they will rate it as less arousing. 
Wow, I'm, I'm suddenly seeing all sorts of potential applications and opportunities for that that sort of work. It's that's pretty amazing. And so, and so you've so you've linked this with this this idea of um, people's emotional reactions to pictures. What, what what other sort of things have we tried as well? I mean, obviously this procedural skill idea is that something you do in exactly the same sort of way to be able to manipulate people's yeah. Re- so replay we, so we're using this targeted memory reactivation on all of these different cases that, that I've mentioned. Um, so with the procedural skills, we get a really strong reaction to this. Um, it seems to be most effective when we reactivate it in slow wave sleep, which is um, a you know different stage of sleep that is characterized by these high amplitude slow oscillations in the cortex, which um, are caused by you know many millions of neurons firing at the same time and then and then pausing and then firing again. Um, and so if we reactivate these memories during that stage of sleep, um, that would be, so supposing you were playing the piano, we would just play back the sounds from the piano, and that would reactivate those memories. And what we find is that, yes, people get much faster. In our tasks, it's not usually about making it sound musical. It's usually about how fast can you produce this sequence of finger presses, right? So people would get faster, um, but also, um, typically, we've given them a sequence of a sequence of presses that repeats. So maybe it repeats every twelve items or something, but we haven't told them that it repeats, and people don't necessarily notice that. Um, but then, if they've had it reactivated during sleep, and we ask them, "Did you notice any kind of underlying sequence?" Then people will be much more likely to have noticed it and to be able to tell us what the sequence is after they've had this reactivated. So what that means is the reactivation isn't just strengthening up the memory, it's actually qualitatively changing the memory so that it's going from a kind of a implicit motor thing to a explicit, oh yes, I learned this sequence and it was in this order. So that's a completely different kind of representation in the brain. Well, what about um, sort of learning of facts as well? Is, is that something you've looked into? Um, yeah, so fact learning would be, um, you know, would fall under the episodic, episodic memory category, like the what did you have for breakfast kind of category, and people have looked at that, um, so maybe a good study to mention is there was a study of, I think they were Dutch people learning German words, or maybe it was the other way around, <laughs> um, but anyway, it was a Dutch-German kind of learning, and um Yes, yeah, so they, they learned the corresponding word in the other language, um, and then um, that word was replayed to them in their sleep, and they, they were able to remember that vocabulary better once it was after it had been replayed in sleep than if it hadn't been replayed. So this kind of thing works quite well as well. And it's not as simple as saying, well, if I want to be a better piano player, I just leave piano play, piano music playing all the way through the night. That that's obviously far too simplistic. But would there be would there be any benefit to that? Because I remember this that sort of technique being used in accelerated learning and and language learning a few years ago. So, is there any basis in that having any benefit at all? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that there certainly is. So I think um, that's why I said at the beginning that this is closer to an old wives' tale than, you know, you might expect, given that this is really cutting-edge research at the moment. Um, I think that there is a lot to be said for just replaying sounds that were associated with something that you learned in the day. So uh, it wouldn't work 
if you hadn't learned it, or we don't think it would work if you hadn't already learned something associated with the sound. So it's not that you can learn it completely in your sleep, um, but if you have learned something, then replaying it in your sleep can be very helpful. And at any stage. So whilst you're trying to manipulate the sleep by knowing exactly which sleep phase is best, fundamentally, as long as it was playing, it would be okay, even for a non-scientist, as it were. Um, well, that's something that we don't know and that we're working on trying to understand. It does seem to make quite a lot of difference which sleep stage you play things in. So um, most of the replay has been done in non-REM sleep. Um, so that is slow wave sleep and stage two sleep, which makes up a big proportion of the night. And then the, also there's something called stage one sleep, which is just when you're falling asleep, mostly. Um, so it seems that replay in, in this non-REM sleep has a big impact, but we're really still trying to get to the bottom of REM. I mean, we, we think REM might be more important for emotional things, but, but to be honest, we really don't know. We haven't done enough studies yet. So the one that I mentioned earlier with emotions is just one study, and so we would need um, a good bit more than that uh, to be, you know, to, to really be able to say something definitive, I think. Sure. So, and I'm not sure whether this is even a, a sensible question, but if you think about the work you're doing, what, and you think about dreaming, which is something that people talk a lot about, is there a, is there a link between dreaming and memory and, and, and the potential manipulation? So this is a kind of an open question. I mean, some people um, would argue that the reactivation that happens is a sort of a it's like a small proportion of the dreaming that's going on that is, well, sorry, let me say that a different way. Um, so some people argue that, that you know, you're, you're having reactivations all the time and occasionally one of these surfaces as a dream. So it'd be a kind of a tip of the iceberg kind of phenomena where something becomes conscious that was actually happening anyway subconsciously. So, you know, that's certainly a possibility and there is evidence out there supporting that. It's just that there isn't a lot of evidence yet because people haven't worked on this a lot yet. And so it's a little bit of dangerous territory for us to start assuming that dreams relate to the memory reactivation. I mean, what's definitely clear is that you can reactivate an awful, you know, you can reactivate things without being aware of it at all. So in our experiments, typically, we always ask people, you know, were you aware of anything in the night? Did you dream about the task? Did you, did you hear the sounds we were playing you? And they might, occasionally they'll hear one or two sounds if they've sort of woken up a little bit, but usually they just aren't aware of anything at all. That's interesting because I, I was interviewing a, um, a hypnotherapist and they were talking about this ability to effectively use the dream state to... To um, you know, to get people to relive or desensitize, des desensitize or recode the way that they thought about things in the past, but it, it sounds like it sounds like it's slightly it's slightly an associated field rather than overlapping. Yeah, I think that in my field would be we'd be quite careful about um, keeping that distinction clear because um, I mean to be perfectly honest, while dreams are fascinating, they're very hard to study. Yeah. And they're very hard to study sort of scientifically. And so I think we'd like to draw a bit of a line <laughs> between yeah. a lot of unscientific work that has been done on dreaming and the, the work that we're doing, which, 
you know, should be properly controlled um, manipulations of your sleep. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, it is interesting how much of um, therapy is based on quite unscientific um, precepts, really. And many of the academics I talk to often are slightly worried about some of the claims made by um, the therapy market. But, you know, that's interesting to hear your view. You also man- mentioned earlier on that um, there was a sort of a link to creativity, and I was I was just intrigued to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, so, the, I mean, that's one of the things that we're working on the most at the moment. So um, if you think about it, if, you, if you're stuck on a, a tricky problem, if you are ever going to come to a solution to that problem, then you, you probably, I mean, without if you're going to come to a solution without being given extra information, if you have all the information that you need to solve the problem, um, then it really is just about looking at that information in a different way, isn't it? So it's like you've got all the memories, everything is already coded there in your brain, um, but you need to, if you're stuck, then maybe you need to come at it from a different angle or you need to turn it on its head somehow, you need to make connections between things that you're not making connections between, you know, somehow you need to look at it differently. Um, And this is a very common um, issue with problem solving. This is what problem solving is about. Um, And so so the proposal that we're studying at the moment with respect to creativity is, or creative problem solving, I would call it, is, um, you know, how can sleep help us to do this and and the reason we so there are multiple reasons why we think it can um i guess they 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 kind of come from several different angles so i mean maybe the easiest angle to see is that there's a load of anecdotal evidence that sleep is important for for creativity and for problem solving right so um famous stories of nobel laureates who realized their big discoveries or claim to have realized them as a result of a dream or just when waking up from sleep. So an example is um, um, Kekule, who, who discovered the chemical structure of benzene, which is a, a circular molecule. Um, and until that time, nobody had realized that molecules could be circular. They were always kind of linear or just, you know, a lump, um, but they weren't circles anyway. And he dreamed of a snake biting its tail um, which uh, it was a particular relates to a particular part of Indian mythology, I believe, and um, this dream allowed him to realize that this molecule could also be circular, and that was a huge discovery. He won the Nobel Prize, um, and it's you know it's been one of the an important basis for all of modern biochemistry, basically. Um, so that's just an example, but there are many other such uh, anecdotes. So, yeah, history is riddled with these things. So there's that. There's this idea that anecdotally sleep is important. But on top of that, there's, there's various bits of research, bits and pieces of studies that people have done to look at the role of sleep in problem solving and creativity. And um, it's, you know, it seems to play a role, but none of the, none of the work is particularly strong. But, you know, um, there is some, seems to be something going on. So there's a bit of that. But then I think for me... Um, the reason that I'm interested in and I'm working on it is, is coming from a quite different angle. We've been doing all of this work on memory for years and we know 
as I've told you, that memories are strengthened, memories are recombined, memories are integrated together. Mm. All of these things are definitely happening to memories while we sleep, and we even have ideas about the processes behind that. And so if you think about it, that, that's exactly the kind of processing that you would need in order to reformulate uh, memories in the way that you'd need to, to come to these creative solutions. Mm. And so all of these different lines of evidence and thinking, I, I think, add up and point towards this. And, and right now we're working on it to see if we can, you know, doing, doing things in a properly controlled scientific way, um, if we can find evidence that this is the case and if we can understand better exactly what's going on. Fascinating. And, and I'm guessing with all this cognitive, um, I'm doing air quotes here, um, improvements, is there an effect or a positive effect on um, ageing and your ability to retain cognitive function in later life? Yes, there is. So, um, so this is a completely separate area that we've been working on. But um, you remember I mentioned these slow oscillations, so these very high amplitude um, slow waves that characterize slow wave sleep. Yeah. Um, th th those are caused by neurons synchronizing, so firing at the same time and then pausing and firing at the same time, with a frequency of about a, a little bit slower than, than once per second. Mm. Um, so it's about 0.8 hertz. And um, basically, in, in children, in small children, you know, there's a slow wave sleep is amazing. The, amp, the, the degree of synchrony in these things is amazing. That means we get really strong, really high amplitude, slow oscillations. Mm. Um, and then as people age, it kind of, it gradually looks less and less impressive. Um, in your average adult, you know, that's, so our criteria for these things is based on adults. So obviously it looks fine in an average adult. But then as people start to pass middle age, um, these things gradually break down. And, and um, what we find is that in men, for instance, by the age of about 65, these slow oscillations can be completely lost. Um, and in women, it might take another 10 years or so, but eventually they, they will be lost as well. Um, and so basically what happens is, if you imagine the slow oscillations like a piece of string, it's almost as if someone's grabbed the two ends of the piece of string and pulled. Mm. And so the amplitude just gets less and less and less. The slow oscillations get flatter and the period gets longer until they're completely gone. And the reason that this is a problem is because it's been shown that the loss of these slow oscillations predicts all kinds of cognitive problems. So it certainly predicts memory problems. Um, and it also seems to predict cortical atrophy in areas of the frontal cortex. Um, and so, and, and we even, I mean, it's, the link hasn't been definitively shown, but there's certainly this idea that this may be a uh, precursor to Alzheimer's and dementia and, you know, these kinds of problems. So um, it's a problem that these slow oscillations decay. We don't want them to decay. We want to maintain them, and we've been working on ways to try and maintain them. So, again, we're actively manipulating the sleep to, to try and maintain these things. Yeah, because it sounds the way you describe it, it sounds like this slow, inevitable decline. But I'm guessing the because there's a lot of evidence that says there are many things you can do to maintain brain or cognitive um, 
plasticity as you get older. And so, and so, are you saying it is inevitable, or that there can be things you can do to maintain this oscillation so you can? Well, so this is what we're working on. So we right. don't know. If Give me some hope, Penny. Wrong. Give me some hope. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a technique at the moment called closed loop stimulation, where we just apply um, very brief bursts of pink noise. Um, so it just sounds like a click sound, 50 milliseconds, um, and we apply them, you know, it's just literally people hear these things, but, but the critical thing is the timing, so we, we play these when the slow oscillations are just coming up to their peak, and it seems to boost the peak of the slow oscillation and boost the next trough, and if we keep doing that, then we can actually boost the slow oscillations, you know, for a longer period, and that has been shown to... Um, improve memory consolidation across that night of sleep and and so we're hopeful that it might uh, have other impacts maybe it would maybe it would slow down this atrophy cortical atrophy um but in order to do that it would clearly need to be applied for a longer term so you know maybe um for months every night or or maybe just continually forever that we don't know um and it it's what we're working on at the moment. Wow, that, I mean that's that's pretty that's pretty special work. Well, <laughs> if it works out, it will be. Yeah, I can see I can see some um, quite quite rich people down in Cardiff in about ten years' time. If that if you can well, find an application for that. Well, all the patents are held by people in the states, so <laughs> we certainly won't be getting any money out of it. But we we might be able to develop something that would be useful to people as they age. I mean, what we um, we are working with a couple of companies who are making devices that can deliver this type of stimulation at home. Uh, there are a few of those things already on the market, but I, what I would say is we're still sort of optimizing the stimulation. And so um, while it works, you can buy these devices and it does work, it will probably work better in a couple of years. Um, and of course, we don't know the impact of doing this long term. I mean, there has never been a study on more than a couple of nights. So this is something that we, we really need to do. Penny, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, I, need to, um, I need to go and read some more of your work. If people want to access some of the research you've been up to or to see other parts of your work, I know you have a TED Talk by the looks of things that they can access. Uh, we'll link to that from our notes. Is, is, is there a way of people getting hold of your uh, research and having a read if they're so, so motivated? Um, yeah, well, they can they can find my web page at the University of Cardiff Psychology Department, and I think all the publications are listed there. Yeah. Or they can just Google it; <laughs> they'll yeah. find most things that way as well. I think. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that's an effective way. <laughs> yes. And we'll yeah. we'll definitely have a link from our show page. So thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate that. It's been absolutely fascinating. Okay. Well, great talking to you as well. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.